0: this episode of the True Blue Crime Podcast. My name is Dan and as always I'll be your host for this episode. Now this is a rewrite and re-record of the Gabby Petito uh, episode. Both the episode today and tomorrow will be parts one and two. I released these back in August but after meeting Gabby's family uh, at CrimeCon 2023 and getting to know them and what their mission is in life I felt like their daughter's story, their loved one's story could be better told as a message to the listeners about the dangers of toxic relationships. So instead of presenting it as the rather popular and controversial story that it was. I will still present the facts of the case and break down some of the controversies, but my main focus for the next couple episodes is going to be to identify those toxic relationship identifiers, as well as discuss how we as a society and law enforcement as a whole can do a better job of changing the narrative when it comes to these toxic relationships. Before we get into that, let's cover the business real quick. If you'd like to get updates about what the podcast is up to, please like and follow the True Blue Crime Productions Facebook page. More information can be found at the show's website at Productions.com. And if you'd like to email the host directly, my email is Productions at gmail.com. If you can, please support the show via Patreon or PayPal. Links to make donations are on the website at Productions.com. Any donation level helps, and will help ensure I can keep making free episodes of the podcast and expand the podcast in the future. Any donations will receive a shout-out in a future podcast and a thank-you message from the host. For no cost whatsoever, please rate and review the show on whatever platform you're listening to it on. Thanks so much. Without any further ado, let's dive into this episode of True Blue Crime. Van life is a concept that goes back to the middle of the 19th century. In Europe, elaborate horse-drawn wagons called Vardos were used by upper nobility to travel in style during long trips around the continent. Most bardos included a bed, a small cast iron stove for cooking, and elaborate woodwork that showed off the wealth of the owner and traveler. Around the same time, oxen-drawn wagons were used in the United States to facilitate westward expansion as families loaded all of their belongings in a Conestoga wagon and took to trails like the Oregon Trail as they headed out to settle in the west. Of a much humbler design, These wagons served the purpose of hauling supplies for the journey and offering shelter during poor weather. Travelers often formed groups of wagons as they headed into the frontier, as attacks from Native Americans and bandits were an ever-present threat. The term circle the wagons referred to the defensive circle people would make with the wagons during an attack as they took shelter in the middle and attempted to repel the aggressors. Roughly 100 years later, most people living out of vehicles had been forced into them during the Great Depression as they moved around the country looking for work. The war and post-war economy helped propel America out of the Depression and into a more stable time period. Fewer people during this time used their vehicles as a form of lodging, and it wasn't until the 1960s and the introduction of vehicles like the VW camper van that people started to use vehicles as mobile forms of lodging again. For the last 60 years, vans, pickup campers, and RVs have gained popularity at times and have offered a form of secondary living for people that want to explore the open road for a few weeks or months each year. But in 2011, the hashtag vanlife was used and popularized by social media influencers and bloggers, and an entire movement took off. People, mainly younger adults, took to converting cargo vans, older conversion vans, and even box trucks into homes on wheels. While some were factory-made with posh interiors complete with small kitchens, entertainment centers, and even indoor and outdoor showers, others were handmade and could be as rough as a sleeping bag on the floor and some wooden boxes for storage. Living out of a van gave the occupants the freedom to travel around the country, work jobs for cash, avoid expensive monthly living costs such as a mortgage and utility bills, and the popularity of this type of lifestyle grew year after year. In 2021, a young couple decided to take on the van life and set out for what was supposed to be a four-month trip across the United States in a converted transit van. When the female half of the couple went missing, it sparked a national outcry against domestic violence, and a man hunt for her fiancé took the country by storm. This is the tragic story of Gabby Petito. Gabrielle Verona Petito was born on March 19, 1999, in Blue Point, New York. She was the oldest sibling out of the seven children that made up her blended family. She had both biological and step-siblings in her house as she was growing up. Gabby, as she was known to her friends and family, graduated from high school in 2017. She met her fiancé, Brian Laundry, during her time in high school. They met when he was a junior and she was a sophomore, and they had an on-again, off-again relationship for much of high school. After graduating, Gabby first moved to North Carolina, where she worked as a waitress, and while she had applied to a local community college, she didn't officially register and attend. In 2019, she started dating Brian again, and moved to Florida where he and his family had moved to from New York. Gabby got a job as a pharmacy tech at a grocery store, while Brian worked at the store and made money selling watercolor paintings and digital artwork. Gabby had always been involved in social media and had aspired to be a social media influencer via Instagram and YouTube. These were pretty big dreams for a young couple with limited social media presence and limited funding. But like many young people, they decided to follow their dreams. Their first trip was not a van life trip, but just a typical cross-country trip that many young people in America take part in. Backpacking across America is not nearly as popular as it is in Europe, and both the size of America and the lack of cheap lodging like hostels and cheap public transport between metro areas results in more young people doing road trips in America than backpacking. The couple completed their first cross-country trip in late 2019 and early 2020, departing from New York and visiting destinations such as Las Vegas, Pikes Peak, and Yosemite. The trip was an attempt for Gabby to build her social media presence, as she posted daily videos and photos on her platforms and attempted to build the following. After returning to Florida from the trip, the young couple quit their grocery store jobs in early 2020 due to the COVID pandemic. Gabby started working 50 to 60 plus hour weeks at two jobs, and Brian was not happy about her working somewhere different than him. This was the first sign that some of her close friends saw that Brian had jealousy and control issues. It was said he was not a fan of her growing social media following because of his jealousy issues. This is a major point of emphasis by Gabby's family and the foundation that bears her name. In many situations of domestic violence and domestic homicide, the murder is committed due to a deep need for control by the offender. The common phrase used by these killers is, if I can't have them, no one will. Control can be seen in many different behaviors by the offending party. It often begins with isolating behavior the controlling party will make efforts, even subtle ones, to distance the victim from family and friends. It may begin with friends of the opposite sex and then expand into close friends and finally family. The isolation may include geographical distancing and the offender may use a quote-unquote fresh start approach to get the victim further away from anyone they may have a regular in-person contact with. In extreme cases, the offender may control the victim's employment include making them quit a job out of jealousy or lack of control and often convincing the victim to work with them on the same shift or at least in the same building so it's easier for the offender to monitor their behavior 24-7. Gabby's family and their foundation has a goal of educating people on the recognition, navigation, and if need be, the escape from these unhealthy relationships. While some see unhealthy behaviors as part of puppy love, it's important to pay attention to the whole picture and recognize when a relationship shifts from cute puppy love to dangerous, toxic, and unhealthy. And so we'll step away for a second from from Gabby's story here. I, I think it's important to recognize a few of these behaviors. And I'll be the first to say, you know, I didn't speak with Brian's family at all prior to this episode. So I don't have his side of things. I'm just going off what i have located in articles on the internet. And what was really important for me as as I spoke with Gabby's family, I never wanted to use my connection to them to further what happened to Gabby in terms of get inside knowledge. I, I said anything that I talked with her family about in regards to Gabby was not going to make this podcast. I was very adamant that the only thing that I wanted to take away to bring to the podcast was their work with these toxic relationships with trying to put an end to some of this domestic violence, domestic homicide that's going on. So when I, I'm i talking about anything that happened with Gabby and Brian in this case, I'm I'm basing that fully off of what I'm reading in articles because, again, because I didn't talk with Brian's family, I don't think it would be fair if I only put the stuff I learned from Gabby's family. And again, that's something I told Gabby's family I wasn't going to do. So I'm using stuff off of articles and I understand that's very surface level. But what we're seeing here already with or this relationship between Brian and Gabby are some of these key signs. And, and really at the end of this part of her story, we're going to talk about the recognition of some of these behaviors by law enforcement and family and friends through what's called the lethality assessment. But what we're already seeing here is is a lot of controlling and jealous behavior. And I'll put this disclaimer out there and this is something that we'll have to do throughout this episode. There is a natural amount of jealousy, insecurity that comes along with relations, especially new ones. If you just started dating someone and you're at a party and that person that you're dating is across the party talking to somebody that you feel is more attractive, more desirable than you are, especially if you're somebody with some self esteem issues, there is going to be a certain amount of jealousy, and I think just it's it's going to be natural to have that little bit of jealousy, that little bit of, of insecurity when it comes to these new relationships. So we're not talking about this natural amount of, of jealousy and, and insecurity at, in relationships. We're talking about severe, life-changing, controlling behavior level. And the difference would be if you're at that party and you see this new boyfriend or girlfriend talking to somebody across the party that little tinge of of jealousy of, of fear intimidation insecurity, what that is something that at that level it's understandable now if you go across the room and basically do everything you can to get your boyfriend or girlfriend away from this other person and and you do that for the duration of this party that they can't talk to members of the opposite sex that you have this complete and utter level of control on them Uh, i've heard of relationships where then on that drive home the it's usually the male will berate the female for even talking to other guys at, at, at the party it's it's relationships like those that we're talking about here, the the severely toxic unhealthy, controlling, jealous style of relationships that there needs to be more education about. And this is education on all levels. I just actually episode 119, which is was recorded a couple of days ago, but is my the latest episode I actually recorded also talks a lot about these insecurity these jealousy these control issues and these toxic relationships so if you want more information about them that that case is another uh, unfortunate situation where a young female's life was taken as a result of a controlling and jealous uh, ex-boyfriend now going back to gabby's case here i just wanted to highlight what we're seeing here some of these behaviors uh, whether it be Brian wanting Gabby to stop working at places he's not working at whether it's the issues with he's having insecurity about these social media accounts because we know what social media is like especially if there's an attractive young man or attractive young woman posting photos out there on on the internet, there's going to be members of the opposite or same sex that are going to be attracted to that person and they're going to like and comment on these photos. And if you've got jealousy or insecurity issues, granted it's a little different because these are indirect uh, conversations, these are indirect comments, But if Brian is perusing Gabby's Instagram or Facebook and seeing men commenting on her looks, on what she's doing in her life, if they're trying to ask her out over social media in a secure relationship, a healthy relationship, this is something where somebody like Brian should be at least having conversations with Gabby, maybe about how it makes him feel, but also he should be understanding that if this is what she wants to do, if she wants to be on social media, this is just something they have to discuss within their relationship. If he's going to try to control all this from the outside and put an end to it altogether, it's not going to work and it's only going to create more stress and unhealthy behavior within the relationship. So, So we've got some of these early signs of this controlling behavior, this toxic behavior, and this is not going to get better as they head out in late 2020. The two had made a plan to pool their money, buy a van, outfit it for four months of cross-country travel, and attempt to secure a social media following that would support a nomadic lifestyle. So again, this is where what Gabby is trying to do. She's trying to become a social media influencer where income to support this lifestyle is going to come from exposure. Well, that exposure comes from putting yourself out there, putting photos of yourself out there and building a following. And it's going to be a following of men and women. And in the case of Gabby, a young, attractive female, she's probably going to get a following of men that find her attractive. And this is what will support this nomadic lifestyle but it's also what is going to cause a lot of issues for brian with his insecurity and and his controlling behavior so before they even leave on this trip unfortunately there's a lot of factors in play that are going to make this difficult from the very beginning now their home for these four months would be a 2012 ford transit van these are the types of vans that are mainly used as commercial work trucks for tradespeople such as plumbers painters HVAC installers, etc., or they're used for delivery vehicles. Then the rear cargo area of the van was raised to provide more space for work equipment and deliveries, and used models of this vehicle are often procured by people wanting to turn them into camper vans. By June of 2021, the couple and their van were ready to hit the road for their epic cross-country trip. They had plans to hit up many of America's national parks and scenic areas as they started their trip across the north in the summer and were would return through the south as fall and the beginning of winter set in. They began by driving up the east coast to visit New York and celebrate one of Gabby's siblings' high school graduation. They returned to Florida and on July 2nd they pointed the van west and set out on their planned road trip. Their first destination appeared to be Colorado as they drove through Kansas on the 4th of July and into Colorado. After visiting Colorado Springs on July 8th and Great Sand Dunes National Park on July 10th, They headed into Utah to take in the beauty that is Zion National Park on July 16th. Five days later, on July 21st, they visited Bryce Canyon and then proceeded on to Mystic Hot Springs in Utah on the 26th. The pair stayed in Utah to visit Canyonlands National Park on July 29th and spent some time in Moab, Utah in the vicinity of Arches National Park on August 12th. But something that would happen on August 12th would later bring a lot of angst and controversy to this case. Around 4 p.m. on August 12th, an eyewitness saw a physical altercation between a man and a woman outside the Moonflower Community Cooperative in Moab, Utah. A man called 911 to report that a male party, who was later identified as Brian, had slapped a female, who was later identified as Gabby, outside the store. The couple then ran up and down the sidewalk, and the male slapped the female again. They then got into their van and left, but the witness took photos of the van and the license plate, and that information was aired to officers in the area. A Moab police officer located the suspect vehicle just outside the entrance to Arches National Park. As they followed the vehicle, it suddenly sped up and then hit the curb, at which point the officer aired that the suspect driver might be intoxicated, and he activated his emergency lights to get the vehicle to pull over. The officer activated his body cam and the entire incident was recorded from start to finish. And now this is something where police officers are trained at least in areas that have the population of officers to support this like larger cities suburbs and even in the more rural areas where you don't want to engage a domestic assault situation with just one officer. So, this other officer is following this van, likely waiting for his backup officer to arrive, because if possible, officers always want to immediately separate those parties, but do so with both parties being observed by a police officer. It's just safety in numbers. It's a safer way to approach this, but when you're following a vehicle, if you now all of a sudden believe that the driver of this vehicle may be intoxicated, you have to make a decision between stopping this vehicle immediately because it now presents a danger to other drivers, pedestrians, bicyclists, anything that could be hit by this intoxicated driver. You need to put an end to that threat and luckily I think based on the video I saw backup is going to arrive pretty quick if not almost immediately after the stop is made. And as I mentioned this entire incident is going to be caught on body cam which has allowed it to be dissected, reviewed, broken down minute by minute, second by second in some situations, and the entire incident is going to be one of the major factors in this case. Now, contact was going to be made with Gabby in the passenger seat, and she was asked to step outside the vehicle and come speak to the officer. It was clear from the video that she was emotional and had been crying and had some redness on her face. And after the point in which officers made contact with Gabby, neither Gabby nor Brian were allowed to speak to each other again. So as I mentioned, one of the main parts of a domestic assault investigation is separating the parties. You do not want them to be able to build a story off of each other. You don't want the aggressor or abuser to be able to influence what the victim is saying. And that is textbook uh, procedure of what is occurring here. With the officer separating Gabby as I mentioned she appears emotional she's got some redness on her face and the original caller has said that the male party Brian has slapped Gabby at least twice and has chased her around and this is August in Moab Utah it's gonna be very hot and so officers are going to at first approach this as if this is Brian has assaulted Gabby getting gabby out of the van as a victim to talk with her and establish probable cause to make an arrest now technically from the eyewitness report the original eyewitness report they do have probable cause to make an arrest at this point of brian but of course to strengthen any case to make sure that the eyewitness didn't see it incorrectly or isn't making stuff up which both have happened they're going to further investigate now on the roadside. Meanwhile, a third officer had located a different witness outside the store where the altercation occurred. That witness stated he saw Gabby hitting Brian, and Brian was trying to push Gabby away. That witness provided a recorded statement and was willing to testify to what they saw. So I'm going to approach this incident much like the 16-year veteran officer who was investigating this case did that day. He had about the same amount of patrol experience that I did and had likely handled hundreds of domestic altercations. I am also going to base my opinions on the facts presented in the actual police reports, the body cam video, and the 99-page report that was written after an independent full review of the police interaction was taken. And as I mentioned before, a lot of attention was brought to the Moab Police Department after this incident. Their actions that day were dissected and discussed at length by every news outlet, internet detective, social media commentator, etc. Again, I'm going to separate myself from my personal connection with Gabby's family at this point. I really have always tried with this podcast to just state the facts and base my opinions off the facts. I am going to support both sides on this case, and that's not me trying to take the easy way out here. It's just how I actually see it. I do see some of the struggles that the Moab Police Department had with this investigation and the uh, the officers who investigated this domestic assault, but I also see some room for improvement. And to not discuss that room for improvement is to do a, a lack of justice for Gabby and her family as well. So I'm going to approach it from the facts, from what we know now, and, and try to not make this as controversial as it is beneficial to moving forward for, for all parties involved. From all that i've reviewed of the incident in moab i believe the officers did what they felt in their hearts was the right thing to do but i also do think mistakes were made and an opportunity to prevent further violence against gabby was missed that being said i also understand the limitations of roadside domestic violence investigations involving people whom the officers have never spoken with before so i'm going to break down the investigation based on all the information i have and talk about what law enforcement did well and where there needs to be change and improvement Two parties of a domestic assault are together. Neither party can talk freely about what happens. So The first step in any domestic situation is to separate the two people involved. Police did that here, and then very quickly they have to get the facts in the case and use those facts to guide their decision-making process in regards to the outcome of the police encounter. In this case, they had two witnesses. The first was the 911 caller who stated they saw Brian slap Gabby, chase her down, and slap her again. What this witness is describing is 100% a domestic assault and a criminal act in which Brian should have been arrested and put into jail. But when an officer arrived to take down more information from that witness, they happened upon a second witness who was telling a different tale of what happened. This new witness made it sound like Gabby was what we call the primary aggressor, or in other words, the person who was actually committing the act of domestic assault upon the other person. The officer at the scene of the altercation never located the original caller, and by either mental error or overt admission, they never called this first 911 caller to verify what they witnessed. So for the remainder of the 75-minute roadside investigation, the officers speaking with Gabby and Brian made their decisions based on this new witness and what the couple told them happened. So this is the first major mistake in this entire case. This entire investigation began with a 911 caller stating that they were seeing a male party assault a female party. Now, you have the two officers that are on scene at the van and then you have another officer who's trying to locate this original witness because and we'll talk about it here in a little bit when you have a third party reporting a domestic assault you often do not get a lot of cooperation from the actual victim or suspect of the assault it's very important to locate any and all witnesses to the assault because those are independent people that will tell you what they saw. Now, one issue with eyewitness reports is they can be wrong. Somebody can see something, somebody's brain can insert things into what they're seeing that is not accurate. Uh, It can be as simple as, what part of the incident they're witnessing it's possible that what both people saw is accurate but one person saw something that occurred in a different time frame than the other person saw it so both could be 100 percent accurate but unless you can get these people together and say what was the first thing you saw and then what was the last thing you saw and if the other person's timeline doesn't match up then you know you have two specific incidents that occurred absent each other on on the timeline. Now, if one person tells you parts of the incident that matches up to what another person saw, but they're seeing two different things on the same timeline, then it's an issue of, well, who do you believe? If they both saw the same incident within the same timeline, but they're telling you two different things happened, then you've got an issue of which witness is telling you the truth or which witness saw things and remembered them correctly and is now able to communicate that to the officer correctly. And the problem we have here is you have that original 911 caller who saw something, made that call, and then you don't necessarily have to locate them in person. People with mobile phones and mobile lifestyles don't often stick around after reporting an incident especially if the two parties involved in this case gabby and brian have left the person may feel they've done their duty just contacting 911, but because they called it in on a phone unless they called it in from within the co-op on a landline and have since left and you don't have any information about their name their phone number way to track them down if if it's not that situation if it's they called from their own phone or they're still on scene officers should be making every effort to talk to all the witnesses now that didn't happen here and that's mistake number one because now what officers are working on is witness number two who stated he saw it in reverse he saw gabby assaulting brian and officers are going to get this information to the scene via a phone call or radio traffic saying hey just a heads up I located a witness here who said it was the female was the primary aggressor, and that's going to change along with what is being said at the scene of the investigation of the van. That's going to change the entire process of this domestic assault investigation. So I'm not going to break down all 75 minutes of the video or the 99 pages of the report, but I'm going to highlight some of the details. And what we also need to do is we have to keep in mind, these are two young individuals that have been traveling through one of the hottest states in America in July and August with very little in the way of privacy or time away from each other. And we've already highlighted some indications of the controlling behavior on the part of Brian. So naturally, there's going to be some discord. But on August 12th, the proverbial pot boiled over and the result was this physical altercation. So I say this because a lot of the times people look at these cases in a vacuum. They... Take away external factors that do actually contribute to these situations. In this case, I said these two young people are traveling the country together. They are in close proximity to each other almost 24 7, and they're living out of a van with limited access to things such as air conditioning, proper sleeping conditions that we all take for granted. And now, Granted, they're choosing to do this. I get that. But if you've ever spent a significant amount of time with somebody in a enclosed, small environment, little things that start to bother you turn into potentially bigger and bigger and bigger things. And now you add elements such as heat and discomfort and being tired and the stress that's on them from a financial standpoint. These are not two young people that come from well-to-do families with a ton of money that they can just decide, forget it, I'm going to go stay in a hotel for three nights so I get some decent sleep, get some decent food. They are living this van life and trying their best with limited funds to sleep and eat and, and continue on this journey so there's a lot of stress financially emotionally socially everything going on and so take that all into account all this stuff that's going on these external factors and then apply that as we discuss what's going on on this specific day so according to both Gabby and Brian. They had spent the late morning and afternoon at the Moonflower Co-op. People living the van life often used co-ops, coffee shops, libraries, fast food places, etc. to access public wi-fi for their communication, internet surfing, and in the case of Gabby, her photo and video uploading. It had been a long hot day and according to reports the flies were terrible outside the co-op where they were sitting. Gabby wanted to get work done on her website and Brian was getting restless and emotions got hot. So here again, we have that indication Gabby is just simply attempting to do something she believes in. And Brian is more concerned about his feelings and desires. And I know, again, I'm, I'm looking at things from, I guess, more of a support of Gabby's point of view here. But Gabby is, at least from the outside looking in... She's just trying to further this social media following. She knows it's important that she continues to upload photos and videos of what's going on on this cross-country tour. And it couldn't be easy for Gabby either, sitting out there in the heat and dealing with these flies and other bugs that are making life somewhat miserable for them. And meanwhile, Brian, who's not apparently doing any of this uploading or, or video or anything like that, he starts to get restless and since he's more concerned about what he wants out of life at this exact moment there ends up being this altercation verbally I assume it started with gabby and brian and this is going to spill over as they finally decide they're going to leave this co-op according to what was told to the police at the side of the road here at some point gabby was looking in the van and she saw a bunch of dirt in the living area and was upset with brian for not keeping the area clean now, think of this as their home, and Gabby sounded as if she was more attuned with keeping your home clean and neat and orderly, and Brian seemed less concerned about this issue. And if you imagine, you know, you're know, you living in this van, so any dirt, mud, stuff that you're bringing into, the, is something you, where you have to sleep and eat and sit, and and especially in some relationships where one person is the person who does all the cleaning then, I mean, that can, again, All of these little issues, these small issues that most people would see as somewhat trivial because of the heat, because of the time spent together, the lack of good sleep, these little trivial issues are going to turn into these trigger points. And according to the couple, then, this argument turns into a pushing match that spilled out onto the street and sidewalk, which prompted the calls from the witnesses. And Gabby wanted to take the van and get some distance, but Brian told officers originally that he didn't want her to take the van because he didn't have a phone and he was worried she would just leave him behind and he would be stuck in Moab. Now this would later be proven a a lie as Brian did have a working phone, so his desire to keep Gabby from driving off was the result of him losing control over Gabby and this situation needed needed that control. So this is what we're going to see again in these toxic relationships is guys will oftentimes recognize and gals uh, but it's usually guys will recognize that their behavior is controlling that it, it is unacceptable to a certain degree that most people should be able to recognize the fact that they need a distance and brian could have allowed gabby to just drive off but brian has to come up with a reason to explain why he acted the way he did and in this case Brian's going to originally tell the officers a lie saying he doesn't have a phone so if Gabby drives off in the van he's literally going to be stuck without a phone at this co-op. Now this to me is a generational thing as well because when I was Brian and, and Gabby's age maybe I had my first cell phone by then but it's also possible I didn't. I, I just I look back to the late 90s when I was a teenager and you know, we didn't have cell phones. So in that situation, there would be no excuse or reason to lie. They're just, the cell phone didn't exist. You didn't need that instant communication. But ultimately, is Brian's going to lie to police, telling him that he's worried that he's going to get abandoned at this co-op because he doesn't have a phone. But in reality, he did have a phone. He just didn't want Gabby to leave him there. And this all comes back to the control, the jealousy, the insecurity, these issues that are rearing their heads in this toxic relationship. And a healthy relationship, a healthy approach to this relationship would be there needs to be some time apart. And time apart can be healthy for a relationship. It can definitely improve the relationship overall. And a healthy approach to this situation would have been if Gabby wants to keep working... Brian can recognize that and say, hey, we're in Moab, Utah. I'm going to go for a walk. I'm going to go find a park to go lay down in for a little bit. Or I'm going to go take a nap in the van. And maybe it's too hot for that. But you get what I'm saying. Brian could have gone and separated himself from Gabby while she was then able to focus on her work, which means she probably would have gotten done faster. And he could have gone off, got a little bit of time to himself to settle down his emotions, to make sure that the situation didn't get out of control but that didn't happen so because he physically couldn't separate himself from gabby and because he wanted what he wanted at that point in his life this led to this argument that led to this domestic situation but brian's control issues would not allow gabby to take her van and get the distance that she needed so this is the equivalent of trapping someone and when gabby finally had enough she fought for the keys to make her escape this scuffle turned physical, with Gabby admitting to scratching and hitting Brian in an attempt to get the keys. Brian did have visible injuries to his face to include scratches on his neck, nose, forehead, and the side of his face, and an injury to his arm. Because these injuries were visible, Brian was asked about them, and he shrugged them off, saying he wasn't in any pain and wasn't complaining. And what we have established so far in this incident is that Gabby has made several attempts to remove herself from Brian, and he has refused to let her get the distance she needs, both psychologically and physically and emotionally. So Gabby was extremely emotional during her roadside interview, a sign that she had reached a breaking point and that she needed a break from Brian desperately. Brian, however, was cool, calm, and collected. So this can be seen one of two ways. Either he was just a laid back guy who didn't get that emotional, or he was putting on an act for the officers since he knew he was on extremely thin ice. We've discussed Brian's visible injuries, and now we'll talk about Gabby's. She had visible redness to her face. Officers, aware of what the first witness had reported, asked her if Brian hit her. Gabby said that Brian did hit her, but it was only after she was hitting him. And this is actually confirmation of what both witnesses saw, and it should have painted a more clear picture of the entire story. Based on what I saw and heard during the roadside interview, and what was reported by both eyewitnesses, I do believe that it's easy to determine that Gabby and Brian had an argument. I think this made Gabby want to leave with a van for some space and Brian refused. Gabby was at this point trapped by Brian, and while in a highly emotional state of mind, she tried to get the van keys from Brian. This led to the physical altercation, and Brian, being larger and stronger than Gabby, sustained injuries during the scuffle. Now, most domestic abuse laws require some form of intent, and the officers fell into the trap of believing there needed to be intent for this crime and shifted their focus to determining if Gabby's actions were criminal in nature as they determined, she was the primary aggressor based on the second eyewitness and what was being said during this domestic assault investigation. When asked where they were headed, Gabby said they were out of water, so they were headed into the National Park to fill their six-gallon water jug. Gabby was offered a Gatorade because of the heat and her stating that she was thirsty, but she said she didn't drink Gatorade and requested a water instead she was given a plastic water bottle which she drank from. Realizing Brian must be thirsty too, he was also offered a plastic water bottle, but he declined stating he was against plastic water bottles and that he only drank from melons. When asked if they were taking any medications, they both denied taking any prescription medications. Gabby admitted she had OCD and high anxiety, and Brian had high anxiety, but she did yoga to calm herself. And it's not uncommon for people in America without the financial means or health insurance to forgo the high cost of prescription medication and also some people don't like the side effects of the drugs so with the information at hand the officers are faced with a serious and eventually life changing decision to make they were about to make this decision based on criminal law and the physical evidence we'll discuss this later but this is something i think that needs to change so what the officers had in their investigation revealed to them that Brian had admitted that Gabby hit him and scratched him, but he was denying the injuries caused him any physical pain. This was troubling for the officer in charge of the call. As I mentioned before, he was a 16 year veteran of law enforcement with daughters of his own. He felt that Brian was likely mentally and emotionally abusing Gabby, and the last thing he wanted was for any harm to come to Gabby. He turned to Utah law for his options, and they all worked against Gabby in the situation. The Utah legislature had written a very clear and concise domestic assault law that meant any physical harm brought against another with a domestic relationship present was an arrestable offense. However, when he read the law, he mistakenly applied intent to the law, which was something that was strictly left out of this law and replaced by the word attempt. The officer working under the assumption the arrest required intent cautioned Gabby to think about her answer and then asked if she intended to harm Brian. She replied strongly that her intent was not to hurt Brian, she just wanted the keys to the van and wanted space. The officers feeling they had navigated the investigation found that both parties were suffering from emotional distress brought on by being in such close quarters to someone for so long without space. They felt based on the evidence provided they could only arrest Gabby and the result of that arrest was not beneficial to her or the situation. They also felt that Brian not only was against the arrest, but he was not truly a victim. Thus, the extremely controversial decision was made to make no arrest and let the parties separate on their own. Gabby was given the keys to her van and told that she could stay wherever she wanted that night, but to stay away from Brian and not contact him via phone unless it was an absolute emergency. Brian was given a ride to a nearby hotel and dropped off by officers. He was told not to contact gabby until morning so the two could have a cooling off period and let the emotions that had boiled over that day subside so with all that discussed let's just talk about the encounter now this is a very typical domestic report incident especially one reported by a third party so if the witness had not called 911 that day it's possible that gabby could have called 911 later in the day if the situation continued to escalate but it's also possible this domestic encounter would have never been documented when a third party reports a domestic it's very often the case that the involved parties do not want law enforcement involvement and once law enforcement is involved the two people don't want any arrests or charges in the case emotional even physical altercations might be part of their normal relationship, and while this is unhealthy and dangerous, some people decide to live with it or are too scared to leave the situation. So that fear is the toughest hurdle for officers to navigate. The fear can be physically, as in the victims know they're gonna suffer further physical abuse as a result of any law enforcement action, or it can be the fear of being separated from somebody that controls them. In this case, it was evident at several points during the investigation as officers could tell that Brian had some level of control over Gabby, and she was even afraid to drive her own van because she, quote, end quote, didn't drive it much. But the law doesn't consider external factors such as control or manipulation. It's black and white and states if someone attempts to harm another person that they have a domestic relationship, they are to be arrested. This is where I believe there's a chance to change domestic violence investigations. Well-educated people have developed what are called lethality assessments. These are usually 8 to 10 questions that are presented to a victim of domestic violence after their partner is arrested for a domestic violence-related crime. The assessment is designed to identify risky behaviors and dangerous and unhealthy relationships to determine the overall peril the victim faces if they continue the relationship. The questions are geared around the suspect's access to weapons, past assaultive behavior, and control issues. While some relationships may have only one or two lethal behaviors, the more dangerous ones can have 80% lethal behaviors. So what I'm recommending is that all domestic violence investigations include a lethality assessment, and even in cases that result in no arrest, a high enough score on the lethality assessment would open up resources to that person. I guarantee if Brian and Gabby were given lethality assessments on each other in Moab, And if they answered the questions honestly, Brian would have scored very high on the scale and Gabby would have scored very low. While this would not be evidence of who needs to be arrested, it could guide law enforcement to pursue non-criminal actions, like the ones granted to officers for 72-hour mental health holds, for enforcing a 72-hour no-contact order and providing a safe place and advocacy for the party facing the lethal threat. This is just one example of the type of things gabby's family would like to see implemented to help reduce the risk of lethal domestic violence and domestic violence as a whole it is not a single solution as the problem is extremely complex but combined with other forms of healthy relationship education it's a step to a safer world for people at risk in toxic relationships so this is really we're going to break down these lethality assessments in part two of this story we're going to talk after this horrendous crime is going to occur against Gabby about what we think the lethality assessment would have revealed uh, about their relationship and match that up to the unfortunate end result of this relationship. But this is exactly the reason I covered this story. I understand the popularity that that revolved around this story with people like Nancy Grace and and other major cable outlets uh, Putting this story front and center on on many nightly news programs. To me, this case is not so much about the popularity of the case. It's about the opportunity for advancement in the areas of domestic assault investigations. As I talked about, law enforcement is severely limited when it comes to discretion on domestic assault investigations. Laws have been written in such a way that officers have very little in the means of discretion on on who they are going to arrest in a domestic assault situation and it almost always revolves around physical harm and injuries and in the case of Gabby she is a much smaller person than Brian is Brian is much larger and stronger than she is so if he is going to do anything physically emotionally any type of abuse against her and she strikes out against him, she is going to have to take her physicality to the next level, even if she's trying to defend herself. Whereas Brian can easily control Gabby without leaving a lot of marks or injuries to her if he decides. So even the law itself, as much as they've tried to protect, and and, and I'll be honest with you, it's usually women, but as they try to write these laws to protect police officers from using discretion and not arresting people in domestic assault situations. In the cases like Gabby's where there is a woman who because of uh, physical, emotional, mental abuse has lashed out, these laws work against those situations. So what I'm saying is the legislature needs to return some level of discretion towards officers And officers can then use a wide variety of tools, such as lethality assessments and other training to make appropriate decisions. And as I mentioned, there's such thing as a 72-hour mental health and welfare hold. Officers can place somebody into a hospital against their will if they feel like that person is a danger to themselves or others. Something very similar in America where you could force somebody out of a dangerous relationship and force them to have no contact with their significant other that you believe is is abusing them for 72 hours and then open them up to different resources let them have an opportunity to understand what continuing down this road in this relationship could result in again it's just education it does require the other person to be willing to listen to the relationship. But if you get the right advocate and you can push forward the right narrative, I think something like that will save lives a lot more than non-discretionary black and white domestic abuse laws that, let's face it, tend to result in more arrests of people that shouldn't be arrested than in situations where you have a clear abuser whether it be mentally, emotionally or even physically that can often hide their crimes until in this case the, the the female party hits their breaking point at which point they look like the criminal based on the laws. So we'll talk about it more when we cover the lethality assessments, but really again, I just wanted to present the facts as I read them in the report, as the investigation broke them down and talk about not the controversy regarding all the what ifs, what if officers had done this, what if officers had done that, and just say it was a really tough situation for those officers. It was an even tougher situation for Gabby. And ultimately, I don't think the right path was available for the officers. And I think that's something that needs to change. Now, we'll keep going with the story because there's a lot more to cover in part two. But there's a, not a lot of information about the days following the Moab incident. But according to reports, Brian flew out of Salt Lake City to his first parents' house in Florida on August 17th, which is five days after the Moab incident. Brian's family attorney would later address media questions about the flight home, stating Brian went back to obtain some items and empty a storage locker and end a storage lease in an effort to save money. He was also contemplating the ex, the extension of this road trip. So in less than two months into this road trip. Brian and Gabby hadn't even hit the halfway point of their four-month trip, and they were considering putting an end to it. And now, unfortunately, and fortunately, I guess, in in Gabby's case, this was her dream. And it was a dream that Brian didn't fully support, and it now appeared to be falling apart in front of her. So this had to be incredibly difficult for Gabby, because when they left for this four-month road trip, this this was her ultimate chance to get a social media following and just experience life as a young adult and and seeing the country and this is something that she loved being out in nature and and doing yoga in nature and and sharing her experiences through social media I mean this this was her absolute dream and she had this semi-supportive but not really supportive guy coming along and and yes Brian drove the van because Gabby didn't like to drive it but you know, what we're seeing, again, just from this glimpse of what happened in Moab, is the fact that, and, and everything that everybody said, he didn't like the fact that she was on on social media and posting these photos and the comments people were making. So she's struggling with all of the stress of the trip, to include what the trip is supposed to be, to include the struggle she's having with Brian along on this trip. And then you hit this halfway point and and a decision has to be made. Are you going to give up on this dream? Are you going to try to do it alone, which is something that Gabby didn't seem to want to be able to, or didn't want to do, or are you going to give it another go? So this is what they decide to do. The couple decides to give another go. So Brian flies back to Salt Lake City on August 23rd and is, is picked up by Gabby, so they conti- could continue their trip together. But the decision to continue the trip and pursue her dream would unfortunately prove to be a deadly choice for the promising young woman. So in part two, we'll cover the strange text from Gabby that eventually led to fears that she had disappeared, and we'll cover the investigation into her disappearance and the outcome of that investigation and what it meant for Brian. So stay tuned for part two of Gabby Petito in our next episode. So I'll just throw the disclaimer out there. This is a lot of heavy stuff to cover. If I said something that appears to be insensitive towards Gabby's plight in this case, I did not mean it. If I said something that was unfair to the situation as a whole, whether it be looking at it from the police officer's standpoint, I didn't mean it to be that negative towards anybody. As I mentioned before, this is a very difficult situation for everyone involved, including Gabby and the the police, and we can't go back and change how the investigation was handled. We can't go back and change what's going to happen to Gabby. I wish I could, but we can't. But what we can do is we can discuss this. We can do it in a way that promotes positive change and and a chance to learn from the mistakes that were made. And that's what I'm trying to do here. So as we continue with Gabby's story, again, please just recognize that's what we're trying to do here don't get bogged down into the minute details of the case and whose fault is this and whose fault is that. Again, I'm trying to present it from a pretty even keeled fact based approach, but we'll get more into everything in part two, discuss uh, the tragic outcome of this case and discuss even more about some of these unhealthy relationships. Uh, thank you guys for listening stay tuned for part two and other future episodes and feel free to write me at truebluecrimeproductions at gmail.com you can also find me at True Blue Crime Productions on facebook and support me via patreon at True Blue Crime Productions. so that's it for today guys thanks for listening talk to you later goodbye